My name is Pastor Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis Church. Uh, we're a 21-month-old mess called a church plant, a new church, uh, a mess, meaning that we try to be real and authentic and open and honest, and, uh, and when we feel the tendency to pretend and perform, we pray that God reveals that tendency to us and that we see it for sin and not just trying to make an excuse and we're drawn to repentance and we seek reconciliation between us, ourselves, and him and between each other. And uh, so that's why it's a mess, is because hopefully it's not just a show. Um, and hopefully this isn't what you consider church. Hopefully you consider individuals church who are on mission in a city, in a community, in family, in apartments, and so forth, who are active about living out the gospel of Jesus Christ and who are using their words, their mouth, to tell others about Jesus Christ and his saving gospel, the hope that comes through his work on the cross. This is what we're about, and uh, we, we are excited about our, our future here in this city, specifically in this community, Germantown and Salemtown, that we have a heart for. It was awesome hanging out with, gosh, I don't know, 500, 600 people yesterday at the, a huge Salemtown reunion party that we were invited to. Uh, it was just awesome. I've never had such wonderful tasting chicken wings in my life. Um, and then other things I've never eaten before, but it was awesome. Um, it, was, it was fantastic. Anyway, this is who we are, and uh, we're about Jesus, and so I hope that you feel welcomed uh, today to be a part of our mess. So if you're not perfect, you'll fit right in, okay? If you think you're perfect, eh, it's going to be a little rough, okay? So uh, anyway, let's pray and ask God to help us as we dig into uh, the sermon and the text today. Lord, would you please come and be with us? Would you be the, the capital T teacher today? Uh, would you be the capital P preacher today? Lord, I've, I've done my, my best to get the, the sermon I think where it needs to go with the help of Pastor Jacob, with the help of the Holy Spirit. And now, Lord, I ask you to come intervene, and would you be the one who manifests yourself, who flexes your, your beautifulness, who flexes your truth, who reveals uh, ultimate reality to the hearts of, of people who have a lot of questions and a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. Lord, I ask you to um, do what we can't for ourselves. Would you open the eyes of our heart to where we see you for who you really are? And let us not deceive ourselves. Lord, would you help us see who we really are? And knowing those two things, I believe that we hurl ourselves at you. So God, give us the boldness to trust you. Lord, open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, so that we can hear from you. God, help us. Lord, you know how much we need hope. Lord, come and be with us. I ask these things because I know you can handle it and I know you can help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is our second week working through our Gospel 101 series. So this is session two of six. Last week we looked at the big picture of Scripture, the grand narrative, the, the big story of what the Bible's working towards, the, from Genesis all the way until the future things in the book of Revelation where we had the framework that we tried to teach and we're trying to keep in our brain is when you think, what is the gospel? It's good to have this narrative come to your mind of creation, fall, redemption, recreation. Okay, so creation, there's peace, 
And then there's the fall that we have in, in Genesis 3. So everything's peaceful through 1 and 2 of Genesis. And then Genesis 3, man, our first parents, they sin. And they begin to pass the blame. You know, we learned all this last week. And so that's the fall. There's inescapable hostility and separation now between ourselves and God. Where there once was peace, there's now a wall of hostility that is thicker than we could ever imagine. Higher than we could ever fathom. And it's there because of our sin. Because God is holy and now we are not. So we're in trouble. We need help. We need a savior. So that's where the redemption piece comes in. And it's in that redemption piece is at the heart of the gospel. It's where Jesus Christ came to earth, Christmas, to live amongst us, to live a perfect life as our representative, to die a death as our substitute, that we're to die for our sin. He died for us in our place. So he lived perfectly because we can't. And he died the death that we deserve, that we don't have to die. The death specifically of bearing the weight and the punishment and judgment of our sin. So we can say, as with Romans 5, that, that now we are who are in Christ are now righteous. And there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of what he did on the cross. So that redemption piece is who Jesus was, who Jesus is, and who Jesus will be. It's what he did, it's what he's doing, and what he will do. That redemption piece is at the heart of the grand, beautiful narrative of Scripture, that framework. And then as a result, we now have peace, just like at the beginning, except without the possibility of sin. This is called heaven. This is the recreation. And this is where in Revelation 5 you read such an epic passage of Scripture. Check it out sometime. It's in the early passages, early verses of Revelation 5. Make a note. It's beautiful. It's where you hear these angels say certain things and you see the redeemed fall on their face in worship of God. And man, that's where this is pointing towards. It started with good news and then bad news and then unbelievable news that it takes absolute faith to believe. And then wonderful news. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. And ideally, as we learn to read Scripture through this lens, understanding that every passage of Scripture in this Bible points towards this grand narrative. It's a part of this grand narrative. So consider the Bible one big volume with four chapters. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. Every passage you come to fits in one of those four categories. Sometimes, if in a certain passage, all four might be attributed in one reading of a passage of Scripture. Read Scripture this way. So, so as we learn to read the Bible this way, through the lens of this, this one volume story called the Grand Narrative, we're moved to worship and adore the Lord. We can appreciate His work for us on our behalf. And this results in a greater and growing awareness of the holiness of God and a greater and growing awareness of our own sin that separates us from God that necessitates a Savior to come be our rescuer, our redeemer. Also, as we, as we learn to live our lives according to the hope and, and the identity that we have received through being gloriously redeemed by grace, through faith and because of Christ, again, we're moved to appreciate what God has done, knowing His holiness and being made more aware of that as we spend time in His Word, and then made more aware of our sin as we get a better glimpse of who Jesus is and who God is, his attributes, namely his holiness.
I remember a friend of mine who, uh, about a year ago, he asked me, he said, I have, a, I have a friend who's dealing with a particular sin. Can you give me a resource on this sin? Whatever it might be, just bitterness, pornography, just any particular sin. Like, I'm just using this story. You fit in whatever sin you think. And he says, D- can you give me a resource on how we can fight that? And I said, yes, it's a great book. It's written by a dead guy named J.C. Ryle. It's called The Holiness of God. He said, the, but that doesn't really, like, hit this sin. I'm like, oh, it does. When your friend is made aware of how holy God is, he will not just see that sin. He'll see a whole other enormous balloon bubble of sin that's in his life. And I believe he'll be drawn to repentance when he sees that. So rather than going to the sin when we look to Jesus and we look to God the Father as holy, it, it's a mirror. We see, we see who we really are compared to how wonderful and how other he is than us that is holy. And it moves us to repentance because we know that we have to change because we're not okay. It's this idea of, of growing, greater, uh, growing in a greater awareness of God and his holiness and a greater awareness of our, of our own sin. And so what we essentially do is we learn more and more how profoundly sinful we are and yet how amazingly and wonderfully loved and forgiven and accepted and cherished we are because of what Christ has done. Because the truth is, because of our sin, we're jacked up. Okay? Profoundly disgusting before the Lord. Unacceptable. And yet we are loved even greater than our sin because Christ took care of our sin. It's not just masked and forgiven. So, okay, it's, you know, we'll just ignore this. Jesus came and he became our sin and bore the wrath of God that's towards our sin for us. That's what the Bible calls propitiation. It's the wrath absorber. And he did that for us. It wasn't refracted, reflected, sent somewhere else, detoured. He owned the punishment that was towards us. This is our hope. This is the hope of the gospel. And so we have this idea of the growing cross. Pull this up. This is the growing cross. And you see this timeline where you have, you you come to a point in time where there's a conversion. There's an obvious change where God has done something in you. He's produced faith in you. And you're now aware of the grace that he's given towards you, that he's shown towards you. And right then, man, you see his holiness and you see your sin. And then through consistent prayer and study and and, and being a part of the Christian community, we grow in our awareness because the power of the Holy Spirit within us, in our hearts, powering us, energizing us, revealing these things to us, we're made more aware of how, how great God is and how holy he is and how sinful we are and that creates a greater cross so the idea is that the longer you live your christian life the more in all you are of jesus the more epic he becomes in your mind because were it not for that cross there would be no hope for you and so the more that you live and the more that you see forgiveness come from God and, and, and the more that you fight sin, the more that you grow in your awareness of God's holiness, it's like, man, the longer you live, the, the grander the gospel should grow. 
the more wonderful the cross should appear. This is the idea. But I'll tell you, this happens very little. God has to help the cross grow in our lives because the tendency is, which we'll look at in just a little bit, that once we're in, it just kind of stays the same. And that's what's disgusting to the outside world. That's what we're getting to this morning. So this heightened, worshipful awareness comes through the Holy Spirit at work in the Christian life. And we can, we can kind of uh, till the soil of our heart. We can throw some miracle grow on our heart, on the soil of our heart, if our heart were a garden. Okay? We can prepare our hearts to receive the Holy Spirit's activity by three main things. And I would encourage you to partake in these three things as often as you possibly can. And you hear it from us all the time. Read the Word of God. Memorize it. Write it. Share it. Meditate on it. Read it. Read it. Read it. Read the Word of God. Don't just listen to podcasts. Don't just attend a worship gathering. Don't just do worship gathering, podcasts, and a community group. Read the Word of God. There's no substitute for you personally Laying out your life before the Lord, saying, speak to me. There is no substitute. There is no quick way. This is it. Get in it. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Lord. This is his word. Feast on it. You're starving for hope. You're starving for wisdom and direction. And you're overlooking the source of wisdom and direction and hope. Even in the Christian community, we do this. Stop. Read the Word of God. And the second thing is, is spend significant time in prayer. Man, pray. Like my great-grandpa used to say, an old preacher, he used to say this. He used to say, oh, Jeremy, I want, you know, he didn't tell me. He told me through my dad. He told my dad this. He said, Bubba, Bub, I want you to pray. And then I want you to pray. He says, pray, pray your list, pray your heart, but then I just want you to pray and just, just bask in who God is. Just waste time. Just sit and just talk about how good God is. And he would always say, pray, 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 pray. Everywhere, I have a lot of his journals. And everywhere, I mean, just there's one big thing that sticks out, pray, pray. He was a desperate man. And my, my prayer is that you will see, along with me, myself, I need this. That we'll be made aware of how desperate we are without Jesus Christ and his activity in our hearts. And then once we see that, I don't think you have to teach people to pray. Once you know you're hungry, I don't have to feed you. You pick it up pretty quick. Even an infant gets that. So once we see that we're needy, I think we'll cry out. But it's so hard in our culture to understand our need. It's so hard to even be honest about our need. So my prayer is that you would see your desperation and how needy you are for Jesus Christ in your life and that I would see how needy I am and then we'll run to him. We'll spend time with him. That's not a last resort. That's not what can I help you with. Well, I mean, of course pray, but then oh, pray. Yeah, there's other things I can help you with, but man, pray. That's, that's huge. I was talking with uh, Jeremy Kulikowski. He's, he's part of our church family. His grandma died a couple days ago in the arms of his mother, Mary Kulikowski. Um, she tried CPR. Man, pray for Mary. Pray for Ashley. Pray for Jeremy. This is tough. 
And I told Jeremy, I said, man, I want to help you as much as I can. I said, I'll fly down. I'll, I'll be with you, whatever you need. I said, but I want you to know I'm doing the most important thing I can do for you. And I'm praying for y'all. I said, that's the most important thing I could ever do. That's better than money. That's better than being there. And of course, I've offered that. I'll, I'll fly there. I'll be with them. I'll help with the funeral. I'll do whatever they need me to do. But I'm letting him know up front, man, this is the biggest thing I can help you with right now. And church family, they're hurting and they need you to pray for them. And that's the biggest thing you can do. Shower them with encouragement. Write them notes. Hit them on Facebook and Twitter. Call them up. Text them. But don't do those things and not pray. That's giving a, a hungry man an empty plate. It's a good start. Pray for them, okay? So reading the Bible, prayer, and lots of time spent in prayer. To the point, as Paul says, that you're praying without ceasing. Like it's become so much part of your DNA. It's not something you check off. It's something that you're continually in. And then the last thing I would say is, is be a part of the body of Christ. Become partners within the church family. Those three things, active on mission with the church, prayer, and reading the Bible, man, that just makes your heart just like a, a greenhouse ready to explode with the growth of the Holy Spirit's activity there. That really prepares your heart. So living this growing cross life is marked by an awareness. It's marked by confession, and it's marked by repentance. And then being drawn into all three much more quickly. So the idea is as you grow in God's awareness of, uh, in awareness of God's holiness and you grow in the awareness of your sin, it hits you a whole lot faster. You don't live with it as long. You're like, man, this is not right. That's where most of us today stop. And we feel guilty. And we try harder. Man, this sin. Oh, what can I do with this? I got it. I'm going to tell people. I'm going to hate it. I'm going to try harder. I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to put security things around my computer. Um, I'm going to force automatic withdrawal from my bank account. I'm going to, like, just, you, you try to mask it. You try to do these things, but, but you're not repenting. You're doing these things, and you're trying hard, and these things aren't necessarily bad or wrong. But the awareness is just the first step. It needs to lead to confession to each other, yes, but to God. God, I'm sorry for this. And then it's a repentance. And this is the most beautiful piece of the gospel. It's where we not simply leave our sin. Like, I'm, I'm leaving you. You're bad. I'm going to go somewhere else. It's saying, there's my Savior. There's Jesus. And you run. You, you hurl yourself at Jesus. And as a result, you leave your sin behind. It's not just trying to get away from that because it's bad. It's being like, whoa, are you kidding me? And you run to Jesus. And you're like, whoa, look back there. Forgiveness. This is crazy. So it's the hardest emotive, and this is why the awareness should lead to conviction and, and then confession and then repentance, which is running to Jesus. I'm excited, man. This is, this is, some, this is some beautiful truth today that I get to share with you. And I'm not sharing it as if I, I know it all and as if I'm great at this. Man, I was moved to brokenness yesterday in my study time of this text of God just revealing sin in my heart and I'm talking like maybe ten times this has happened in my life where I just it's hard to breathe I'm crying so much I mean it was brokenness so I'm not coming to you like all fixed and pretty I'm coming to you I need this today 
So my prayer is that you'll receive it, not from a know-it-all, because that's very deceiving, but from someone who's broken and needy, much more needy than you are. I need this today. So let's get in. Let's get encouraged. God can help us. You see, this, this cycle of, of, of awareness and confession and repentance is the cycle of the Christian life. This is, this is the way the Christian life is supposed to be lived. It's believing the gospel. And then, because of our nature, it's failing to believe the gospel. It's idolatry. It's, it's drifting off into sin. And it's, it happens multiple times a day, for much more than what we would ever fathom to believe that we'd ever really want to believe. But we sin so much every day. But it's growing in this awareness. And you're like, ah. Oh, I've failed here. I'm aware of this. And then it's confessing it. And then it's repenting of it. And then it's believing the gospel again. And then you fail to believe the gospel. But you see it. You confess it. You repent of it. And you believe the gospel again. This is the cycle. And the idea of the growing cross of this cycle churns a whole lot quicker. There's not, day, there's not hours. There's not days that progress before this stuff is revealed. The Holy Spirit makes it aware to us. A couple weeks ago, I went down to Alabama with some uh, Acts 29 networks, my church planning, church starter buddies. And um, Ray was there with us. He's 62 uh, this year. And uh, he's riding shotgun with me. It's the front seat um, for those who weren't born in the country. And um, I was driving my car. And in the back were, were three guys who were uh, working to start new churches. Ray and I are kind of established. We're, we're, we're ahead of these three guys as far as just church planning-wise. And he was messing on his phone, and, uh, and, you know, he was just kind of in and out of the conversation and whatnot. We were all talking about different things. The next day, I get this phone call. I, it's, he leaves a message. Jeremy, I wish I hadn't deleted it. I'll play it for you. He says, Jeremy, would you please call me? Something is bothering me. He said, I... I thought I heard you say something yesterday in the car that I realized later you didn't say. But there was a 15-minute block where I was assuming the worst in you. And I felt like you contradicted yourself. I know you didn't because I've processed it since then, but I need you to forgive me for those 15 minutes where I was just absolutely not believing in, in the words you were saying. I call him, I'm like, Ray, are you kidding me? Like, are you like... <laughs> I have to repent of that kind of stuff, you know? He's like, yeah, Jeremy, you need to start doing that if you haven't yet. Like, that's the idea. Is the longer you've lived in the Christian life, the, the greater awareness of even the little stuff begins to fester. He said, Jeremy, I've lost sleep over this. I'm so thankful for your forgiveness. I was so worried that we weren't going to be friends. He said these things. I mean, that's how weighty it was. And we're thinking, really? That's our sin. And my prayer is that we would even be made much more aware than Ray of our sin. This is the awareness that I'm talking about here. This is what we need. And it's that cycle that churns, that brings us to awareness, that brings us to confession, that brings us to repentance, and then aha, rest, peace in the gospel again. Okay, so what happens when you become less amazed and less aware of God's holiness in your sin? This is the shrinking cross. I think we have that too. And see, what you have here is you have the same thing. Your, your life in a point in time, somewhere, somehow, God works in your heart, reveals your sin. He saves you. It's your conversion. You're made aware of his holiness. 
You're made aware of your sinfulness, and you see Jesus as the means of saving you from your helpless situation, from your hopeless situation. The same first cross is there in both charts. But what happens is it just stays there. It's on cruise control. It's just a lackadaisical Christian life. Just kind of rolling with the flow, just no really engagement in the Word of God, no real prayer life. I mean, of, of course there's the emergencies when sickness or death or an accident happens that, you know, we have to go, you know, pray and, and you know, we're, we're active for two or three weeks in the church and then, and then it kind of wears off, it kind of fades, much like the cross. And we just kind of just live this cycle of indwelling sin for months and then something big and it kind of brings us back to Jesus and then it kind of fades away and then something big brings us back to Jesus and then one of our kids rebels it brings us back to Jesus because we see our desperation. These things reveal our desperation. Do you see that? you see how that cycle works? It's like, oh, we need God here. The fact is we need God through that entire experience, through that entire, the rest of our lives. We need the gospel revealing these things, making us aware of who God is, knowing in a greater way how wonderful he is, knowing in a greater way how hopeless we really are apart from the cross. This is what it means to try to have the growing cross and, and shed the idea of this. But this, this is where I live a lot and where I've lived a whole lot in the past. Because being raised in church, you can get pretty good at pretending, faking, and performing. So when we, when we have a shrinking cross like this or a fading cross, we begin to excuse our sin. We begin to hide it, and we think to ourselves, I don't think people will accept me or welcome me if they know that I blank. So we just, we hide our sin. And, and then if we don't do that, we'll defend it and explain things away or, oh, okay, yeah, that's right, but look at all this other stuff I've done that's, that's good. So we have this karma idea in order to justify our decision and our sin. And then we downplay it. You know, this is normal. We all have our sinful nature. We all have our petty sins. We all have our thorn in the flesh. We begin to use this, this Christian language. Ultimately, we're just saying it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. And then I think that as a way of excusing, we blame it on others. You know, it's because of the situation I was in. Or it was their idea. It wasn't my idea. It was their idea. So we begin to play the blame game, just like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And so we become better at pretending. We become better at hiding and excusing. We become better at performing. Let's look into the Word. Go to Luke with me. It's in the New Testament. Matthew's in the, in the very beginning of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Let's hit up Luke here. And we're going to see two stories. One is a parable. It means it wasn't true. It was used to prove a point that Jesus uses. And then there's something that happens right after that, or soon after that, where a conversation takes place, and it's a, it's a real, quote, true story. Okay, here we go. Let's look into the Word of God here. Try to find yourself in these stories. Try to. Force yourself to see which character you play sometimes, okay? Verse 9, Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable, this parable that we're about to unfold, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. What does it mean to trust in yourself that you're righteous? That you're 
self-righteous, right? You're trusting in yourself to be righteous. And look at the result of being self-righteous. Look in the text. And treated others with contempt. You see, when you're self-righteous, you can, I mean, you set the bar. In, in your mind, self-righteousness is, it's, it's well, this, because I can attain this. And then anybody who doesn't get there, oh, they need Jesus. So you've kind of grading yourself on your own curve. That's why you can judge others, is because you yourself have met the requirement of righteousness. But not perfect righteousness, it's called self-righteousness. Okay, so Jesus unfolds this story, this parable, to a group of people who supposes that they could be self-righteous, made righteous through themselves, and also who hold others in contempt. Okay, let's look what he says here in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Good thing, right? Yeah, you with me? One a Pharisee and the other tax collector. The audience is mainly made up of Pharisees. So they're thinking, okay, I see how this is going. The tax collectors are bad news. They're bad guys. They're just awful. It's hard to find an honest tax collector. Though there were some, it's hard to find them. And so as soon as Jesus says this, the Pharisees are thinking, oh, we're, we're finally the good guys in one of his stories. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed. Again, that's good. He's praised this. God, I thank you. Okay, so he acknowledges divine activity in his life. He's attributing what he's about to say to grace. So that's how we're supposed to pray. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even, as if it's even worse, this tax collector. Notice he's standing by himself, so he's, he's probably got somebody out of the corner of his eye, and I thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. Again, this self-righteousness. And he unpacks his bar for righteousness. I fast twice a week. Again, that's a beautiful thing. I give tithes of all that I get. Again, it's a beautiful thing. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I think this is the most significant, profound prayer in all the Bible. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He did not even have the the morale, the self-righteousness in him, just to even lift his eyes to heaven. He felt that heavy by his sin. God, just be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is true perspective. The tax collector knew the truth about himself. The Pharisee was deceived. I've been tricked in the same way. Now let's look at verse 18. So this conversation begins to happen on this self-righteousness. Same crowd. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus said to him, I love how Jesus always asks a question after they've asked a question. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The irony. You know the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he says to him, and I imagine Jesus was going to continue to list these things out. I don't know if he was interrupted by this guy or what, but clearly he, just, he begins to say, I have kept, all these I have kept from my youth. Seriously? Really? You're going to tell Jesus to his face that? Like, again, do you see the deception? Like, certainly he hasn't kept these things, especially since his youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing, and you know, I could imagine Jesus saying, oh, there are hundreds. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and give all to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me, the big statement of discipleship, to follow Jesus, to be a Christian. Then Come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Do you see the deception? One, to think that he's righteous, that he's actually kept all these commandments since his youth. And the other, Jesus reveals the idol, the heart issue. The control of having money. The power of having those possessions. And he hits it right there. This one thing is this root idol. And you can't follow me because you're following this. Deception, thinking that he was righteous, yet he's missing it completely, entirely. Pretending, like these men, minimizes our sin. By making ourselves out to be something that we're not. It's simply not true. But we believe it. But it's not true. We're being deceived. And performing minimizes God's holiness by reducing his standard to something we can meet. That's that self-righteousness piece that, that lowers the bar to where we're, oh, we can attain this. And therefore, since we can attain where we think the bar is, then we deserve God's favor. We've earned it. You see, this growing awareness of our sin and of God's holiness isn't fun. It's incredibly inconvenient. It's evasive. It's invasive. It's huge. It takes control, which is what it's supposed to do. That is true hope. Finding no hope in anything other than Jesus Christ. Running completely to him then living life. When we fail to embrace the gospel regarding our sin, we will crumble under the crushing weight of our sin. So we pretend. And you see, the gospel says that as we see our new identity, not as what we have done or failed to do, rather our identity that is in Christ and what he's accomplished for us, there is rest, there is peace, there is joy, there is weight lifted that's going on off our shoulders where we can live, where we can run in this life, 
where we have a true, honest smile and not one of these things that we have to work up and muster because this is such broken, broken, frown, sad tears. But we're going around these people, so we've got to smile. And it kills us. And what happens is we begin to drift away from Christian community because it's too hard to fake it that long. Or, perhaps even worse, we just get really good at performing and faking and just kind of fit in. We can pretend that we're better than we really are by being dishonest and say, you know, I'm not that bad. Like, there, there are worse people around. Or, or we, we use comparison. I'm not really that way. Honestly, I'm this way. Or even a false righteousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But look at all the good things that I've done. And we do this subconsciously. And sometimes we even say them to others. What we do is we get really good at, at taking uh, a partial truth and spinning it in our favor. Because we don't want to admit the whole truth. And then, if we're not rooted in God's acceptance of us through Jesus, that identity that comes through Him, we compensate by trying to earn God's approval through this performance. Ask yourself this question to discern your little subtle tendencies towards this pretending. Did we lose it? We'll get it. So ask yourself this question. Okay, focus with me. What do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility? What do you count on to give you a sense of personal validity, to make you somebody who's real, who has an identity, who has been accepted? What do you lean on for that thing? Your answer will reveal, most often, something besides Jesus in which you find your righteousness and your identity. And it's when we rely on something else and believe in something else and begin to hang our identity on that and it destroys us and it, it lets us down, it disappoints us that we're left again saying, what next? I've got to try something else. And it's believing in and growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ that says there's a stable hook that I can hang my life on. This is the source of, of truth. I can live out from this. This is my base. So here's some examples I want you to consider of different types of self-righteousness, okay? Here we go. Pay attention, please. Job righteousness. I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. He must be proud of my efforts. There's family righteousness. Because I do things right as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. And my kids are so much more, they're so much better behaved than, than the other kids. And if their parents love Jesus the way I love Jesus, they would teach their kids differently. And then the ones without kids, when I'm a parent, blah, 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 blah. And that's all it is. <laughs> and then there's, there's theological righteousness. I have a solid, robust theology. And God must prefer me over those who have weak theology. And then if you base your, your righteousness on that, 
you'll begin to wonder why your church isn't growing, but the guy with weaker theology, his church is exploding. And so what do you do? Oh, it's my theology. I've got to grow better my theology. God clearly is not seeing my efforts here. You see how this works? Intellectual righteousness. I'm so much, uh, I'm, I'm so much of a better reader. I'm more articulate. I'm, I'm culturally contextual. So much more so than others. God must think that I'm really, really doing this thing well in Nashville, Tennessee. There's schedule righteousness. I'm self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others. Flexibility righteousness. In a busy world, I'm, I'm flexible. I'm relaxed. I'm chill. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Jesus always took time for others. Mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and the disadvantaged the way everyone else should. I even moved into a needy neighborhood to make a difference. If everyone loved Jesus like me, they would do the same thing. So then when, when others don't meet your bar, do you see how resentment and bitterness and judgmental attitudes flow out to that? This is a big one for me. Legalistic righteousness. I don't drink, smoke, watch already movies, or date for the wrong reasons. Too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days. They're so shallow. I remember being 18 years old, never kissed a girl, never watched an art movie, never saw drugs once in my life, never, not even once. Never had, well, I did hold a cigarette. It was a little foam filter that I found on the front porch from a deacon at my dad's church smoking after church, and I'm doing the trash. Like, that's, that's my experience. I mean, to my friends and my classmates, I looked like the perfect kid. I never said a curse word. And I thought to myself, as, and I would riddle those things off. How do you think I can still remember this list? For 18, for 20 years, I would just riddle this thing off. And then, and then a rebellion happened in my life at age 19. And it was about a year and a half where I was just all Jeremy. Not even cloaked with self-righteousness. Just rebel. And I felt so worthless. Because I wasn't even matching up to my own idea of righteousness. And when you brag about not cursing and you curse, when you brag about not kissing and you kiss, when you brag about not smoking and you smoke, when you drag about, brag about not dr uh, drinking and you drink, where's your righteousness? When you brag about not watching an already movie and you watch an already movie, where do you go? If that's, if that's your identity and you do that, you have nothing. That's where I was. This is how false righteousness, self-righteousness will destroy you, Christian. Financial righteousness. I manage money wisely and stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. Political righteousness. If you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate. And it's, a, it's hard to be tolerant of people who would not vote for your candidate. You're like, Man, how are you a Christian and vote for them? Like, we've said these words before. Don't act like you haven't. I've been a part of conversations. <laughs> I know the Christian church, okay? Tolerance, righteousness. I'm open-minded and charitable toward those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus this way. And if people love Jesus the way I love Jesus, they'll be more tolerant. Shame on those 
who are so narrow-minded. Who are you to say shame on anybody? Oh, you're self-righteous. You raise the bar in your own life to a certain level, and then when others can't meet it, oh, I get it. God is the only one who's ever able to say shame on you and actually mean something. And he looked at Jesus on the cross and said, shame on you, to Jesus. Because he stood as our representative and our, as our substitute. All that shame went to him. So guess what's for us? Love. There's no shame. So when you feel shame, that is not supposed to be setting in your heart. All these work to make us feel better than we are. And it makes us feel good enough. It makes us feel better than others. They make us feel righteous and accepted by what we do rather than honestly confronting our sin and our brokenness. So what this is, this self-righteousness, is a doorway to a plethora of sins because we make ourselves the judge. So everything we do is sin because it's matched by our holiness and where our bar is, not where God's holiness is. Again, you see the idea of that shrinking cross. And this is the tool of the enemy, this type of deception. Ask yourself this question in regards to performing. We're almost finished here. As God thinks of you right now, as God thinks of me right now, what is the look on his face? Is he disappointed? Is it just blank and shaking his head? Is he angry? Is he indifferent? You think he's looking at you, but then you realize, oh, he's not even looking at me. He'd care less. Does his face say, get your act together? What's your problem? Have I not told you over and over and over again? Try harder. Is this what he says? Does his face say, if you could just do a little bit more for me, if you could just give just a little bit more, if you could serve just a little bit more. Christian, if you pictured the face of God as anything but overjoyed with you, you've fallen into performance. The gospel, man, this is awesome. The gospel truth says that in Christ, God is deeply satisfied with you. He's satisfied. For perfect God to be satisfied, that must mean you're really special. The gospel truth is that, Christian, you are the apple of his eye. Your past is forgiven. Your future is bright. You're his adopted daughter. You're cherished. You're his adopted son. He loves you. Take the most perfect father you could ever fathom on earth. And he is light years beyond that as a father to you. He's so much better than that. That makes him look like a horrible father on earth compared to how glorious he is. Even the best dad. This is your identity. This is how you're cherished. Cherished. Think of what it means to be cherished. Think of that word. Think of the things that have been cherished throughout time. You are cherished. It's when our identity shifts from being settled and comforted by our adopted status that we drift into this restless recklessness 
that we've drifted into this worthless, performance-driven Christianity. And I've labeled this PDC. Not to be cool, it's just easier to type it out in my notes. So PDC, it's a poor, terrible religion. It's repulsive to outsiders. It's ugly, it's disgusting, it's nauseating. No one wants it. And we're saying, Jesus loves you. Come to our church this Sunday, and you're a performance-driven Christian. And they're like, why on earth would I do that? I'm never going to be good enough. Or if it's not repulsive to outsiders, it's guilt-laden to those who are in the church. With your little smirk comments. We need to pray for them because of, you know, like he... We, we know he hasn't given this, and he hasn't showed up to the volunteer, and it's these little things that other people hear, and they're like, wait a minute, like, where's this bar? Like, what's guilt? So whenever a person who overhears that doesn't show up and serve or doesn't show up to pray, he's guilty because he knows the conversations that's being had in that church building. That's worthless, and this is joyless. It's a religious pipe dream that we must continually be delivered from by way of coming to the cross and growing in our awareness of God's holiness, growing in our awareness of who we really are, and seeing that Jesus is the prize. Jesus is where it's worth talking about. And following Jesus is tough, but it's nowhere close to being joyless. And even in even if its toughness and its difficulty, he gives the Holy Spirit to be what Jesus himself called the helper the comforter, Jesus called him. The Holy Spirit. PDC, performance-driven Christianity, minimizes the character of God and his glorious attributes, his holiness, that makes him worthy of worship. It's those very attributes that make him worthy of worship, and it's minimized because of our performance-driven Christianity. It calls us to feel that, that we could... That we could take serious, like we could really honestly, seriously impress him. Like we, we believe this. Like our righteousness says, I can impress him by what I do and what I do not do. It's moralism and legalism at its best. And since he's been reduced to something small, something like us, no one really needs to take him seriously at all. And we've created our own God that is no God at all. And we worship that God. And we serve that God. And we wonder why we're so shameful and guilty. It's because we're not worshiping the one true God. Christian, may God bring us to repentance over this. You and me, you repent of this. Jeremy, repent of this. This is the mess. Is us working through performance-driven Christianity. This PDC allows us to think that we can force God to smile bigger by how good we can be and by how hard we can work. And this is a real feeling that we really honestly feel it, but it's based entirely on false securities of pretending and performing. Christian, your life is to be characterized by joy and freedom, not faking, not guilt, not shame. Live for Christ. Don't just exist Live for Christ. Embrace your new, hope-filled, gospel-given identity. And live for Him. Live until you see your Savior, the one who has the cross, to bring you together with God again and give you peace until you see Him face to face. Give until you see Him. Go until you see Him. Fight sin. Don't shun it. 
Don't ignore it. Don't let it settle as if it's going to get better. Just because you forget it doesn't mean it's not, that it's been forgiven. Repent of it. Run to Jesus. Don't live in sin. And pray and ask God to help deliver you from performance-driven Christianity. Ask God to help give you a greater awareness of His holiness. Ask Him to give you a greater awareness of your sin. Say, God, help me in this, this gospel life cycle, this repentance cycle. Help me reveal my sin. May it hit me in the face. Don't let it stay in the grass. I want to see it. Bring it up in my face. Don't let it hide. Don't let Satan deceive me and think it's actually worship. Let me see it. And, and give me the boldness and the power to repent of it and run to you. And then for those who are outside of Christ this morning, Jesus offers you, because of his work on the cross, a new beginning, a new start. He, through his power, you can lay your head down your pillow tonight and feel peace. You can feel comforted. You can feel rested. This is true. I've been on the other side. I know what it's like to toss and turn. I know what it's like to have that anxiety, that knot in your stomach. That thick throat all the time. Jesus offers you a way out of the guilt and out of the shame. And if anyone ever, if anyone ever makes you feel shameful or guilty in this church body over a sin, you come get me and we're going to have a talk with that person. Shame on anyone who wants to throw shame and guilt on somebody when they begin to confess their sin. May this be a safe place for Christians and unbelievers to admit their failures and admit their sin. And may it be padded walls and warm, warm wrapped arms around them. May it be a safe place to fall. May it be a safe place to be held in forgiveness, not self-righteousness. The quote has been met, been met for self-righteous churches. We have enough of those. We need gospel-driven, hope-filled churches. Unbeliever, get in on this. Remember that significant prayer? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The heart of that man, when he said that, even his posture, even his posture is he could not even lift his eyes to heaven. Beat his breast. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have nothing else to say. It's beautiful. Would you, in a similar fashion, in that heart, in that way that he had himself, if you feel the Holy Spirit working in your heart, do you feel that? Do you feel him placing something in you that just says, man, you've tried everything else? Trust me. Trust me.